Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. The OG3 is here. No guest again, but we're going to try something new today. We're going to work on doing something. It's just different. We haven't really talked about visiting farms and when we get calls to come out and help. And all three of us get calls to come out and help at farms. And we're going to kind of go over our approach to that. And we're going to do that by going through an actual case study of a farm that I visited um that was having an issue and just kind of walk through it and decide you know walk you through what we're thinking about as we're getting information and and how things played out how things have improved and so we'll, we'll kind of key you into all of that so it's kind of like a mix between uh, a day in the life episode and then science deep dive case study but also kind of a day in the life too because we do case studies all the time for things for sure day in the life for me because it's like every day trying to run a dairy farm a research dairy world. farm still real world still real oh world. yeah yeah mm-hmm. brad's running down problems every day trying to figure out what's going on and that, yeah, that's they call me, uh, I'm, I'm just a firefighter out here that, that's all i am <laughs> the first thing to do is kind of go over how we approach being on farm and and for me i think that the biggest thing that you learn right away is that you have to listen like there's no other way around it. Like the the first thing you got to do is get as much information as you can before you really open your mouth about any recommendations or anything else or any observations that you're making. You just got to get as much information as possible. And that includes for me information about what's going on in the, the family's life and anything else that could be working into some of the logistical problems that might happen that that stem from some of these problems that we have on farms and and if you don't know those things, if you don't know the logistics of how things work, if there's any labor issues on the farm or anything like that, then your recommendations can't be relevant. So for me, uh, when I get on a farm, the first thing I want to do is learn as much as possible about what's going on. Honestly, the way that I've been taught, uh, and this comes back all the way to physical exams for cows, if uh, a farmer calls and says, my cow has an LDA. Okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to look at that cow and I'm going to look at everything about that cow except the LDA first, because I don't want to get my blinders on and miss something. So I'm going to go do everything else and I'll come to the LDA last. And that's just how I work. So a lot of times that's how I work on these farm things, too. So if someone calls and says, I've got an issue with whatever, whatever they they have an issue with, I'm going to tell them right away, I'm not ignoring that problem. But I need to know so much more about the rest of your farm to get get this in context and make sure I don't miss anything that's contributing to this problem and then go to that problem last. So that's just kind of how I approach it when I get on a farm. I don't know if you do anything else different, uh, Emily or Brad. Well, the first thing I do is ask if there's a bull on the premises. Good call. <laughs> but yeah, then I think it's it's really similar. They The farmer usually wants to dive right into the problem and... I also, you know, want to get kind of the overview of things and and look at the other things, you know, you want to kind of follow the trail, right? The the cause to effect. We we know what the effect is, but it takes really thorough observation to to get to the actual cause, right? We can have ideas and and you know, maybe a list of possibilities, but if you're really digging down and and getting all the information and and observing everything you can, 
uh, it's more likely that you're going to have an accurate cause. Well, I think for me, it's it's exploring all of the aspects of the farm, because sometimes the issue that may be happening on the farm is not like if it's a calf issue, maybe it's partially calves, but maybe it's dry cows or somewhere else. So you want to be able to explore all of the aspects. I know that takes time and everybody wants an answer quick, but sometimes it the answer is not as easy as what uh, we might think it to be. And I don't think it's ever as easy. It's maybe not one specific thing usually. It's a combination of different things. Yeah, there's always so many variables. And I think that the, the thing that it does is that there's some time up front, but the next time that someone needs help with something, we're, we're ahead. I already know so much about that farm and a lot of things that I would need to know for any other issue that that comes up. So I think there's still value in that because it does take time. And that can be frustrating and expensive. So enough talking about all these other things and our general philosophy on life, but uh, let's get into this case study itself. This was a, a call I got, uh, a manager on this beef operation at a farm uh, was having issues with calf mortality. And this is a, a, a beef farm, cow calf. They needed someone to come up and just look at the whole operation, take a peek at what's going on and see if there was a something they were missing or a fix for, for what was happening on this operation. That That's sometimes all I get for information and that's fine. Uh, I don't mind that. Everyone else, everyone has different expectations for what success is, what failure is, all these things. So to me, I like to get into the numbers right away. Is there actually an issue? That, that comes up a lot, especially in feedlots with mortalities and, and people that used to be dairy farmers that are not used to losing cows very often and having the correct expectations kind of determines what success is and what failure is. So I like to find out, is there actually an issue here or is this something where this person is actually doing an excellent job and we're just trying to look to be a little bit better and they just need to know that they already are doing an excellent job. Some of the background on this farm uh, it appears to be very clean and well taken care of. There's a lot of pride evident. Everything is well taken care of. It's organized. Everything is in its place. And uh, in addition, the owner and, and manager of this farm is a nutritionist. So they definitely know about the requirements of the cows. Um, the cows get fed a TMR when they're not on pasture with incorporated mineral. Um, and in addition, they actually source some of their hay from a dairy farm. So these cows are getting fed low quality dairy hay. So still high quality on the beef side. It's one of the things that I noticed about Morris, and I don't want Brad to get too big of a head here, but when, when you drive on the farm, any farm, you can tell right away how well organized things are, how clean they are, where things are, are set up and and it starts in the yard. I mean, that, that happens right away. And when I when I drive on the on the yard in, in Morris, it it's clean and everything is in its spot. There's not uh, junk laying around everywhere, and that is a sense of pride that I you can feel in that farm as soon as you drive on. Maybe Brad looks at it a little more and he he sees all those things, but I can tell that that someone really cares about that place. We we hide it well. We hide it well. I would I would actually agree with Joe on this and and pay Bradley a compliment. Um, the the farm is always well maintained and 
I don't go there super often, but when I do, I know where things are because they're always in the same place. Well, thank you. Oh, well, Bradley's all flattered. <laughs> and it, it it is something that I, you notice right away. And it's something that you, it, it, it tells you something about the farm right out of the gate. You can't judge everything on that. That's for sure. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in everyone's life. The weather plays a huge factor in all of that, the time of year, all of those kind of things. But um, you can generally tell when you get on a farm, if it's well-maintained, if it, there's a lot of pride in that operation right away. Um, and this, this farm definitely had it right out of the gate. And tell us, like, get, let's get into the numbers and tell us what's going on with um, the 2020 calving season is what we'll start with and then uh, see what we had going for the next year. Yeah, absolutely. So in the 2020 calving season, this farm had 184 cows exposed at breeding. 11 of them were open, so 173 cows calved. And from that, 178 calves were born. So we did have some multiples. Of the 178, 29 of those calves were lost. 18 of them died before three days of age, and 11 of them died after three days of age. So when we look at calves weaned per cow exposed, we get 81%. And, and honestly, Joe, I, I don't know what a good number for that is. So maybe can you enlighten me really quick? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that we look at on the beef side that are important metrics. Weaning percentage or calves weaned per cow exposed is one of those. And we we do want that to be, I mean, obviously we want it to be as high as possible. Achieving that at 100% is oftentimes unrealistic if you have any number of cattle because there's just fluke things that happen and that's the way it works when you have cows. Above 90% is great. Above 85% is good. Anything below 85% and I'm I'm really looking for for making some changes, potentially big changes on the farm to improve that number. And this is a pretty common trend in Minnesota. Uh, if we look at the numbers historically, this is what we see. We're pretty good at getting cows pregnant in Minnesota on the beef side. In fact, we're really good. But keeping calves alive until weaning is where we struggle. And some of that's weather, can't deny that. We have just bad weather uh, for, for some of this. But there are some management things that, that can be changed to, to fix some of these things and try to get this straight. The other number that I, I look at, but we didn't have access to on this farm is pounds of calf weaned per cow exposed. So that gives us a performance number in there as well. Not only are we looking at reproductive performance and reproductive efficiency, but then I also basically I get to a, a, a window into how fast those calves grow. So that that's probably the overall metric that I like the most to assess farms. It also, we can, we can establish with that number, a break even for, for the, the cost of production, basically, uh, by being able to say, well, we're going to wean on average, this, this num this pounds of calf per cow in the system. That's a very valuable number on the, on this farm, we had the weaning, the weaning percentage at 81%. And this is too low. And that's why we're here. We're here to try to figure out how we get that number to be better. So should we jump into some of the 2021? Yeah, let's look at the, the next year. So this is that that was what we had already. And now I'm here um, before the 2021 calving season or, or just as it's starting. That's uh, kind of some context for when I was on the farm. But yeah, let's get into what's what's different about the next calving season. 
First thing, um, the herd was cut down. So they went from 184 cows to 150. And they were really looking for a 60-day calving window. But the actual calving window, just with stragglers and everything, was closer to 90 days. Um, the replacement heifers were kept separate, but all of the other ages are mixed. And the cows are outwintered on the cornfield with bottomless bunks. There are five bunks, and in total, we have 12 inches of bunk space per cow. There's also water available all, at all times. The big thing to note is that the herd was cut, and I think that was just necessity. I mean, we had open cows. We had uh, calves that died, cows that that weren't uh, working for us, so uh, cutting that down. And I think part of this is also that the, the owner recognized some of the issues that were going on and realized that one of the fixes was to to have less cows. And that's a, a super viable option a lot of times. I, I wish I could convince most bankers that sometimes less cows is the answer. It's hard. It's a hard thing to do because cow numbers are important for that. And, and maybe Brad has a comment on that because it's really not all that different for the for the dairy side. And it's most farmers want to keep as many animals as possible. It's, I think it's in everybody's nature. It's like we, we're hoarders of cows and calves and that's, everybody wants to give younger animals an opportunity. So it just, we, we just keep animals around that we probably shouldn't just because I guess we can. And sometimes that, that sounds works. like a very Bradley answer <laughs> because we can. It's true. But okay, I want to jump into another number here, and that's the bunk space uh, for the TMR. So 12 inches per cow. What say you, Dr. Joe? Yeah, and I think it, it's not all that different when we talk about dairy and beef cows. In general, adult dairy cows are not all that different sized than an adult beef cow. There's definitely some confirmation differences, but when it comes to size and the space they need to eat, uh, it's not all that different. And so 12 inches is not enough. We, we need at, at least two feet per head. So double what we have now. So that's one of the things I noticed right away. If you notice, we're talking about calving season and I'm talking about the bunk space and the outwintering lot. So this is comes back to full circle what we were talking about in the beginning that you gotta get information on the whole farm, the whole system, because it's all connected the bunk space in your outwintering lot is going to affect your calving success and your weaning rates or your pounds of caffeine per cow exposed because it affects body condition on these cows, which affects colostrum, which affects how much milk they can give, all these other things. So like there's so much that happens just because I'm looking at the bunk space in the outwintering lot and it's not adequate. So that's one of the, the things we identified right away that uh, potentially needed to change. Uh, mixing age groups just makes that even more important. So I've got mixed age groups, except for my replacement heifers. So my second calf heifers are mixed in with the cows. And we all know the cows are in charge and they're going to kick those second calf heifers off of feed if there's not enough space. So then we get into a situation where the animals that need feed the most, which are still growing and trying to grow a calf, are getting pushed off of feed. We didn't have the opportunity to go through records on this farm and really dig into okay, what is our rebreeding success on our second calf heifers? But I would, I would bet quite a bit of money that it isn't adequate or it's much below average because of the mixing of the age groups and those animals being pushed off a of feed all the time. 
All right. Well, I think we're going to proceed with more information. Joe, I'm loving all of your passion. I can tell you're really getting into this, but I don't want this episode to be an hour long. So we're going to keep her moving. So two weeks prior to calving season, the cows are moved to the calving lot. Prior to calving season, that lot is used to house feedlot animals. Um, it is cleaned as much as possible before the cows are introduced. There are 200 feet of fence line bunk available and they have a tile floor. So there we're at 16 inches uh, per cow of bunk space. Uh, there's a loafing shed available and there are two bedded packs established, one in the loafing shed and one on the south side of the fence. Uh, the loafing shed is about 1,500 square feet and the south fence pack is approximately 13,000 square feet. So that gives us 96 square feet per cow of pack space. Uh, and we usually look to be at about 100 there. Uh, corn stalks are used for the bedded pack, but there is no base established prior. And there is half of a heated waterer available, 40 linear inches of space, which computes to a quarter inch per cow. So maybe just right off the bat, Joe, uh, what should we be looking at for water space? So water space is... Uh... It's an argument, a constant argument, because water is expensive uh, and it, it just is getting a water set up and it's just, it's expensive. There are a lot of management, as we, we learned from Bradley last week, that in Minnesota, water freezes a lot. So we have to keep that in mind as we as we think about all the, the water space. So it, it is a challenge. And now I would love to see two linear inches per cow. Is that really realistic in most cases, especially in a calving lot that you're probably only going to use for 60 days a year? Probably not. Probably not. I'll admit that. So I, I like to try to figure out some way to, to, to supplement this if we can, but I want to see one, one inch per cow at the minimum uh, and a quarter inch per cow is, is definitely something that catches my eye. Now, I still don't think it's the biggest problem. So we're not going to like really bang our heads against the wall on this because it is an expensive fix. So not too big a deal. I love that the bedded pack space is more than adequate. That's awesome. Uh, uh, basically being right at hundred square feet per cow is, is wonderful. So I kind of ignored that and I, I'd love to see a, a base go down so that we have a nice soft place to lay right away. But again, on this farm, I looked at the cows and the cows tell you what's going on. Cows are clean, the cows are dry. So again, not a huge deal, especially since there's so much space. And then the, the bunk space again, we wanna have more bunk space than that if we can. Again, in this situation, in the calving yard, I don't know if it's as big a deal as in the outwintering lot because everything's on a leg. So this is gonna affect probably what you feed now, the condition of your cow's body condition in the in the calving lot will might affect your reproduction, um, but it's probably not going to affect calf health as much. Um, so we're we're looking at this as saying, okay, this is definitely an area for improvement and it's important. But if we're already establishing, what's the hierarchy of problems here? And that's what I'm looking for, really, as we're in the back of my mind as we walk through the farm is. Here's all these issues, but what's really important and what's most important? Because there's limited time, there's limited money, and you got to pick something to work on. 
All right. So now we'll move along to, to what happens after the calves hit the ground. Uh, so cow flow. So cows that have calved are moved to holding pen one where there is water and a round bale feeder available. And there's access to the barn available, uh, which is bedded with corn stalks. There's usually no more than 10 animals allowed in pen one, uh, and they can stay in pen one anywhere from two days to two weeks. After the pen one cows are moved to holding pen two until there are enough cows to justify the work of feeding and establishing a pack in the outwintering field. And then once there are enough cows, cows are moved from holding pen one to the overwintering field where a water, a pack, and TMR bunks are available. When we're talking audio, and, and I know that everyone's just listening to us right now without any other context to this, which makes it really difficult to talk about cow flow. And so uh, I'm lucky, especially now at the university, that I have a drone. So I always kick the drone up in the air when I get a chance and I can see everything from up top. And then I can talk through these things uh, with a map, basically, to show where cows are moving. And I think that's my favorite way to do it. And I think we've talked about that on this show before. And I think Brad and I have actually given a presentation together to talk about mapping pastures and and how to do that and how important it is to have a visual so that everyone's on the same page. And really what it comes down to when I'm talking about cow flow, we're trying to limit the mixing of age groups of calves in and try to keep them separate so that older calves aren't giving younger calves pathogens that lead to scours. And we're trying to basically maximize the space that calves have if we are going to mix age groups. So we're, we can't avoid mixing age groups here just because we're not going to split things into pastures. There's just not enough labor to do that what we're trying to do is just streamline things. When we talk about cow flow, get them to as much space as possible, as quickly as possible without having this bottleneck where every single cow sees this tiny space where pathogens can accumulate. That's what we're looking for with cow flow. It's so hard to do just talking about it. So um, I think we should move on and that can be a subject. If people want to hear more about it, maybe we'll do something on YouTube to, to talk about cow flow. Yes, the drone footage is always very, very cool. So it's a really unique perspective to, to take to really dive into these issues. But anyways, we're going to move on now to some of the observations from this visit. As Joe already mentioned, uh, the cows were very clean. Um, they seemed receptive to people, even strangers. And my favorite, the cows are identified clearly with ear tags that include their birth year. So that's good as, as Joe's talking about ages of animals and things like that. Joe also took some body condition scores and there was quite a range there. And remember the body condition scoring for beef cattle is on a scale of nine. So the lowest body condition observed was 4.5. The highest was 7.5. Uh, the majority of cows fell between five and seven. And the majority of second calf heifers fall between five and six. So, Joe, let's make some sense of, of these numbers on body condition scores. That seems to be quite the range there. Yeah, the range is, is what's most concerning. Um, and it speaks to the bunk space. Uh, when we limit bunk space, our fat cows get fatter, our skinny cows stay skinny and or get skinnier. 
So it's not surprising if we're going to limit bunk space and not have that two feet per head of linear bunk space, we're going to have a wide range because big fat cows, boss cows push small skinny cows off feed and we end up with this big range. So it, to me, a body condition in this point is con confirming that the bunk space matters. And I like doing body condition scores with the farmer right there so that we can say, okay, this is why it matters. And this is why, and it really does matter. Uh, so body condition scores important, but more as a tool to show that there's very important things that we can do to change it and make our nutrition more targeted. And, and this is a common thread for me with nutrition. When we talk anything nutrition related, uh, the end uh, and, and what's happening with the cows tells you what's going on. You can formulate on paper all you want, and the cows tell you what's actually going on. And I think Brad can speak to that too. I mean, anytime you're messing with, even when we're talking pasture, you can test that pasture left and right, but the cows tell you what's up. Yeah, you always got to watch the cows. You know, that, that's the, you know, probably first rule of thumb. The cows will figure out what's happening probably a lot faster than what we can figure it out ourselves. Uh, so definitely, or, you know, I haven't said this in a while. You could look, you could use a sensor, you know, we could figure stuff out with sensors, but obviously the farm that we're talking about today probably doesn't have that. Emily's giving me a dirty look as always, uh, but it does happen. Sometimes those sensors are picking stuff up before we know it. That's a subject for another day. Put a sensor in it is Brad's answer. He has to work it in. And that, and it, it is a viable answer. Um, on most beef operations, we're not going to see sensors, but really, I think it's just it's just my gripe when we talk about this is where I think the biggest opportunity is for veterinarians and nutritionists to work together uh, is that a lot of times the vet is there looking at those animals has a chance to be there. That veterinarian can concentrate on what's happening with the animals uh, and what they can see on the physical nutrition side. And the nutritionist can come in and, and help and, and be there when there's a problem and be notified. And then that communication can go back and forth. That is super valuable. So, um, but yeah, it, it doesn't just all happen on paper. You got to be there in person for that. And body condition is one of the things. Manure scores are another. Cud chewing is another thing you can look at. Uh, shaker boxes to make sure that TMR is being mixed correctly and in the right order and we're not sorting all those things. So I think there's, there's a lot of more to nutrition than just what's being formulated on paper. All right. So before we get in to Dr. Joe's official recommendations, uh, let's round out a little bit more information about this farm. So we haven't mentioned the replacement heifers yet. Uh, there are 26 animals in the group. They have two bunks with 30 feet of space each. So more than enough bunks for those replacement heifers. Good to see. Uh, the body condition scores here are very uniform, mostly six out of nine, a little bit of variability. Um, and the smaller, younger animals still show really good condition. The lowest body condition observed was 5.5 and the highest was six. So replacement heifers seem to, to really be well taken care of, well-maintained, you know, I, I love to see that uniformity there in size as well and plenty of bunk space. Uh, but just some other information on the farm here quick. Uh, they do have a vaccination protocol in place. Um, there was a cow in the 2020 season identified as nursing colostrum from the close-up cows, and she was removed from the herd immediately. So remember, 2020 was really where we saw that, that high mortality. So 
uh, thinking, you know, lack of passive transfer and, and some of those pieces there. But I know Joe will get into that a little bit more. They also do have a warming box that is used sparingly. It is made of wood and it's 15 years old. So probably for the best that it's used as little as possible. Yeah, I mean, when we're looking at these kind of things, I mean, this is the perfect scenario, right? I, when, when I was on the farm, we looked at the cows first. We went out to the outwintering lot and looked at the bunk space there. And then we went to the replacement heifers. So we had just finished doing body condition scores and looking at the cows in the yard, which had had 12 uh, inches of bunk space for quite a while. And we saw that huge range in body condition. And then to go to the, the replacement heifers and, and unbeknownst to me, they had had the perfect amount of bunk space and they were a uniform group and they looked perfect. It was really nice to see that, okay, I just, I had something on the farm that proved, uh, proved my theory and it was sitting there waiting for me. I just didn't know it. It just was a happy accident, but it really showed. Um, and I think it drove home the importance of that. Cause when you really look at them side by side and you saw how uniform those replacement heifers were, any nutrition decision you make is going to apply to the whole group. Didn't matter if they were really young or really old, they were all really, uh, uniform in body condition and it, uh, any nutrition decision was going to matter for the whole group, which is perfect. That's what you want to see. And you can be really targeted and it's more efficient, all of that. Love to see that. The vaccine protocol, we didn't really get into it because that's something that that's between them and their veterinarian. They felt it was working well. We didn't talk about it because I think there's plenty of other opportunities for improvement here uh, to get into instead. The cow uh, nursing off of the colostrum off these close-up cows is certainly an issue. I think Brad talked about at one point that he had a cow doing that for a while too. And, uh, uh yeah, it can be pretty frustrating. That's, yeah, you know, it's, well, oh my can... God, he's speechless. <laughs> That's yeah, exactly. how frustrating it is. I don't, I don't know how to, yeah. <laughs> it's bad. And, and it, it does rob colostrum from those calves, which we know colostrum being the, the most important thing we can do for them. If they don't get it, that, that becomes part of our issue. Uh, the, the warming box, I look for choke points. Sometimes it's a warming box. Sometimes it's the trailer at the dairy that they use to move calves from the dairy to the calf facility. That thing, if it's made of wood, you better just burn it right now. That thing has everything in it and, and it's a choke point where every calf's gonna pick up every scour's disease known to man. Just have a bonfire, have a beer around it. That, that thing needs to go. Um, and, and most of the time with these wood warming boxes, I feel the same. Uh, this one was, even though 15 years old, very clean. I still don't like it. I still think it should be part of that bonfire and a beer, but it, you need them sometimes. Sometimes you just need them. And I'd rather that calf was warm and exposed to some scour pathogens and we focused on colostrum and we got a live calf out of the deal than not using it at all. So didn't really focus on that much. And when you're having that warming box bonfire, you can, of course, invite the three of us to join you. Oh, we'll, we'll drive for that one for sure. Absolutely. All right. So Dr. Joe, we've gone through a, a ton of information, a lot of observations that you made. Um, but I'm curious, you know, when, when you first drive off of the farm, right. And, and all three of us have been there, your head is just kind of spinning with all sorts of things. Like, ah, I should have asked that, or, you know, just thinking about all the things you saw and some of your, you know, initial thoughts and ideas. Uh, so why don't you run us through just a little bit, uh, some of your in the car windshield thought time. Every time you leave a farm, you start running through all the things. And then about five minutes down the road, you're like, I, 
I forgot to ask this and this and this. And so you end up on the phone quite a bit, either while you're driving home, asking those follow-up questions that you forgot, or the next day, figuring out if you can get a hold of the farmer to ask those questions. For me, what I really wanted to know was where did these calf mortalities occur in the calving window? So we knew when the calves died and how old they were when they died. But when did they happen? Were they all at the front end of the calving window in the first 21 days, in the second 21 days, or are they way at the end? That can tell you some information about what's going on with pathogens and uh, accumulation of pathogens in the calving lot or in these choke points that we talked about, um, like the holding pen, the first holding pen, all those kind of things. So those are the kind of things that you think about afterwards. And, and you just got to call and ask because it's valuable information to know. And it really leads you into what's most important. I start building the hierarchy right away as I leave the farm. Um, and those follow-up questions are usually brought on by, okay, how do I decide what's more important when we recommend what should happen next? In this farm, when we talked about the calving window and the mortality and, and when did those things occur, they were all over the place. They were not concentrated in any one part of the, the window. If they had been concentrated toward the end, I would have said, okay, we've got a cow flow issue and absolutely cow flow needs to be improved because we're accumulating pathogens and those calves that are born late are hurting because of it. They just see more pathogens than the cows born early and all of that. That wasn't the case on this farm. So I know that we didn't have to improve cow flow right off the bat. That, that could be beneficial, absolutely, but we can kick that to kind of the bottom of the list and then focus on the other things that are more important. So those are the kind of things that come up. And really, it's about building that hierarchy of what is most important. Obviously, we like to, you know, get back to farmers. And when we go out and visit and try to figure out what's going on, and, you know, we we want to be able to help them. So what are what are Dr. Joe's recommendations for these farms? And, and, and what do we do to, to help them with some of the issues that they've been having? So with this farm specifically, we, again, it comes back to ordering things in, in importance. And I, I always do that because it, it's not fair to, to me to just list a bunch of things and expect the farmer to just do them all. It's not going to happen. It just and and if it does happen, it's going to take some time. It's not going to happen all at once. It's going to maybe take years to get some of these things done. So I like to establish this hierarchy right away, and I always list my recommendations. And this is the most important thing you can do, and what you should focus on first. Sometimes uh, the hierarchy of what you should do first is based on how easy it is to do. If um, there's a really simple fix. It's not going to change labor. It's not going to have an increased cost to anything, not going to cost any more time to that farmer. That might be the number one recommendation. Even if it's going to make a small change or a small benefit, it might be the number one recommendation because it's so easy to do and it can be done right away. So um, with this farm specifically, we looked at bunk space. And I think we've hammered that home that this is something that we needed to fix on this farm. I recommend to this farm that we change the outwintering bunk space first. So um, that is the most important to me for the health of the calves, because we need a uniform body condition across the board for these cows, and they need to be at the correct body condition, uh, getting all their mineral, all those things consistently so that we can produce good colostrum and then also produce enough milk for these calves to grow and have the groceries and a more viable calf, even just when it hits the ground, when all those things are taken care of. Two feet of linear bunk space uh, in the outwintering lot. 
which is perfect. Uh, the husband at this place built the bunks himself and they were awesome, beautiful bunks. So uh, he just was like, well, I needed a project anyway this winter for the shop. So he got to build in bunks right away. Problem solved. So uh, wonderful that that was an option. Now, increasing the bunk space in the calving lot was was recommendation number two, little little more difficult uh, just because of the space and the way the road was set up. And because they're feeding a TMR, uh, a little bit more difficult to do. Now, they figured out how to do it, um, but that was not as important as the outwintering lot. After that, they actually have a well that they weren't using that was in the barn that the cows in the calving lot had access to. So all they were going to do is set up a supplemental tank uh, and figure out how to get uh, that water increased. And that worked perfectly as well. So then we ended up with about one linear inch of water space per cow. Perfect fix. We talk about all these other management decisions that, that kind of came out of this. Uh, having the stragglers that kick the calving window out to 90 days. Uh, like Brad said, we become hoarders sometimes of cows and it's hard to get rid of those stragglers. But the peace of mind when you do is amazing. Uh, if you cut your window at 60 days and you know I'm done at that 60 day and if anybody's left, too bad, like that's that's perfect. And you can even do that uh, at preg check or with cat with breeding dates if you have AI dates. So you can you can cut all of that down before you have to actually look at a pregnant animal that hasn't calved yet, get rid of them. And that's obviously the recommendation to do that instead of feeding them all winter when you're not even going to calve them out. That would be the, the next recommendation for this herd is, is getting that hard calving window, make the cut, do it early in the fall when you preg check and just don't deal with those stragglers because they're not worth your time. And then the rest of the recommendations are, were, you know, we talked about bedded pack and building a base, but they, they, they were kind of nitpicky in my, in my mind, you know, uh, not really a big deal. We can improve calf flow or cow flow in this situation, but again, hard to talk about on a podcast and uh, a minor fix, really, really minor fix, because we already shown that that probably wasn't an issue with pathogen accumulation. So uh, in my mind, fixing the bunk space at this farm and, and making sure that that was correct would probably solve almost all the issues. And it, you'll see a gradual uh, return to, to better, better numbers and, and their previous performance. So they obviously made some changes. So do you think, where are we sitting with this farm? Have they seen improvements or are we still getting to that goal for 2022 calving season, which is actually not too far away? Yeah, they're going to start calving here pretty soon. So we'll see how they do this year. In 2021, and I, I put this in, in my report to the, to the farm saying that just the fact that we have less cows is going to make it so it's better. Uh, there's two ways to, to make more bunk space, right? You can uh, make more bunks or you can get rid of cows. Uh, I'd, I'd much rather have you know, less cows and have better success with calves and end up with the same number of calves at the end of the day anyway, and avoid the stress of having calves die. And, and that's, a, that's something we haven't talked about yet, but it's a huge, huge stressor to have all this morbidity, mortality going on with the calves and losing calves. And it, it's a mental drain and it affects your mental health to have to deal with that day in and day out. So I'd have less cows uh, is one way to, to make more bunk space. And that's absolutely a viable option. 
we'll we'll see. Maybe we'll provide an update after this calving season and see how things go. Uh, if I can get in touch with them and they're willing to share, we'll uh, we'll see how this calving season goes. And uh, but it it already did go better in 2021. It went much better. But some of the changes we made were were really to to affect 2022's calving season uh, in the in the end of it. So we'll we'll kind of see what happens this year. Yeah, and I think a lot of these uh, recommendations that you gave Joe are, are are ones that we can see and and make a change right away, and hopefully that'll fix it. I think could be others, and there could be more that you know maybe if if we uh, have an update and see how this farm is doing, maybe there's other things that we need to go back and maybe these did help change and improve things, but maybe there's other tangible things that certainly we can look at and and go from there. And the best part is we're, we're, we've got a head start. If this farm needs help with something else, we already know all these things about the farm. So you're, you're not jumping into it blind. You, you're coming into it with some history, knowing what's going on. And that's the best part. And that's, that's why you need to have a relationship with your veterinarian and your nutritionist and anybody else that comes to your farm. Um, because there's a lot of things that matter that you can't just find out uh, in a day and, and expect to know everything about that farm. I think that that is a great place to wrap this episode. We all hope that that you liked this kind of different format with doing a case study. Uh, if you do want to follow up on the farm we discussed today, and if you would be interested in more case study episodes, and if you have questions, comments, or skating rebuttals, you can email all of that to the Moose Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at U-M-N dot E-D-U. You can find us on Twitter at U-M-N Moosroom and at U-M-N Farm Safety. And brand new way to reach us, we now have a voicemail for listener questions. What could possibly go wrong? So if you would like to call in with your question, you can call 612-624-3610. Just give us your name, where you're from, and what your question is. And you will get to hear your answer on a future episode of The Booze Room. Again, that number is 612-624-3610. It will also be in the episode notes. That's all we got. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was a nice silence. Jesus, you guys. I was going to say something, but... Yeah, we saw that. Why didn't you say anything? (laughs) Oh my God, no, 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 you're done. Mute your mic, mute your mic.